it's probably safe to say that nearly everyone enjoys a good love story. And, and I'm not talking about like a sappy chick flick or a romance novel. I'm talking about classics, you know, like, like The Princess Bride, right? The Princess Bride has it all. You've got young love interrupted by unforeseen forces, but lo- not interrupted. Love that risks, love that defies logic, love that even defies death. True love. If you've been in love, or if you are in love, you know that love is like a disease. It infects your brain and your heart, and it causes you sometimes to say things and do things that, well, normally you would suppress, because the better of you might tell you to suppress it. Um, Sometimes it causes you to do things that are less than wise, the foolish things we do for love. I'm not even saying that love always causes us to do good things or the right thing. All I'm saying is that love sometimes opens up our perspective on the world in a different way. The Bible has often been referred to as God's love letter to his people, to his creation. Now I think that that is horribly, overly simplistic. Uh, And it's a lot more than that, but at the same time, gosh, when you distill it, isn't it a lot like that? Isn't it a lot about this God who creates? He doesn't have to create. He creates out of love for relationship. And then his creation rebels against him, and so he... He chases them down and wants to continue to love them. And and then he makes a covenant with them. And even though they keep turning their back on him, he's faithful to his end of the covenant. And he comes in the flesh and dwells among us and and dies our death for us so that we can have what? A relationship with him for eternity. It's a love story. And this week in our text, we are dealing with a love story. Uh, Last week, we covered the first part of the scene. Jacob, the younger of two twins, there's Jacob and Esau, swindled his brother out of his blessing. He has to flee for his life. So Isaac, his dad, blesses Jacob, sends him on his way nearly 500 miles to the, the settlement of Haran, where Jacob is supposed to take a wife from his mother's family. He shows up at this well. He meets the girl of his dreams, Rachel from the right family, and he's so overjoyed, he weeps. He weeps. He's a man that has nothing but a staff and a promise, and he's met the woman he's been looking for. We pick up the story now in Genesis 29, and please stand with me as we read. I'm actually going to start in verse 13 and go through 35. So Rebecca has just run back and told her dad Laban about this visitor uh, from her family, Jacob. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me. What shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, "Ah, It's better I give her to you than some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, And they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. 
Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob slept with her. And Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, it's not the practice of our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we'll give you the other one also for the service which you shall serve me for the, uh, another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week and then he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah his daughter, to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore she named him Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. And then she stopped bearing. Father, open our hearts. Open our minds, we pray to what it is you're saying to us through your word. Thank you for these wonderful accounts, these stories of the people of God. Thank you that we in Jesus are part of this narrative, part of this story. But Lord, let it be more than a story to us. I pray that you would change our hearts, change the way we think, change the, the way that we are to reflect your image and your character more fully. Amen. Please be seated. Wow, what a story. The things we do for love, right? The things we do for love. I see at least four different love stories, four different lessons on love in this passage. And so what I'm going to do is kind of work through those. And the first love story that I see involves Laban. Now that may come as some surprise to you because Laban doesn't seem like he loves anyone, does he? That's precisely the point. Laban's love story is a story of self-love. I think Laban loves himself, and he loves himself more than anyone. We're first introduced to Laban's self-love chapters ago in chapter 24. Abraham had sent his servant uh, to go to Haran to find his son Isaac a wife, and he comes with all of this wealth, and... So Rebecca comes and tells her family, hey, there's this visitor from our family, from Abraham, and he's looking for a wife, and he, I think he likes me. And so she comes and tells her, and Laban finds out about all this, and, and I quote, when he, speaking of Laban, saw the ring, and he saw the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, 
Come in and be blessed of the Lord. Now, the language there. Notice Laban, you know, he doesn't take this guy in because he's a family member. He doesn't check him out on behalf of his sister. Like, someone's coming to date my sister? What is this dude about? Right? But Laban, he goes there, he sees with his eyes the bracelets, the rings, the wealth. He sees the camels, which is money. It's like a train of like BMWs or something. I mean, it's wealth. And it's eerily similar to the garden scene where you've got Eve. And, and well, here's the quote from the Garden of Eden. When Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took and ate of its fruit. Laban is a guy who's out to improve his position in life. It doesn't really matter who he runs over or who he uses to get there. He wants to improve his standing to get his own. And at this time in our story this evening, he's an older man, but he hasn't changed very much. This time, he sees in Jacob a man with very little wealth. He's got a staff in his hand. But this man, Jacob, has two things that Laban can leverage. First of all, he knows that this guy Jacob is gaga over his daughter Rachel. And man, you can leverage a lot with love. Second, he, he knows that Jacob is incredibly strong. strong. According to the stories that uh, Rachel's probably told him, this is the dude who single-handedly lifted the stone off the mouth of the well. The stone that supposedly took multiple shepherds to lift off. He knows that Jacob could be a valuable worker for him and increase his economic standing. Now, let me remind you that in the ancient world, there was no 401k, there was no pension plan, that your family was the pension plan. So you wanted to have sons so that they could have big families and take care of you. Laban's family has shepherdesses. His daughters are out working the field, which implies that he has no sons. So he's got these two girls, and he needs to get them married off so that he can be taken care of in his old age. So Laban says to Jacob, Because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? You know, in our contemporary context, it seems like Laban is being really generous. Like, oh, Uncle Laban is giving nephew Jacob a job. That's cool. I mean, in our culture, that would be really nice, right? But this is where the distance of time and culture betray us. An ancient Near Eastern reader would read this and say, Laban's response is actually fairly rude. The hospitable thing to do for a family member would be to allow Jacob to work to marry his daughter, to get a good leg up in life. Family didn't usually pay each other. It was, it was a matter of building honor. It was a matter of, of, of building your family. But listen to these words by Bruce Waltke. Laban is degrading the blood relationship between himself and Jacob into an economic arrangement. You see that it should have been a family deal. Like, oh yeah, come in, we'll get you and my daughter a good, healthy start to your marriage. You can work for me. That's what you do for a family member. But he's, he's turned that family relationship into an economic arrangement. Uh, I, I, the quote continues, Laban keeps Jacob as nothing more than a laborer under contract. And later on, Jacob would bitterly complain about this in chapter 31. Of course, Laban is most, most notorious for conning his nephew Jacob. 
in an effort to get more free labor out of this guy and to marry off both of his daughters, Laban deceives Jacob by giving him Leah instead of Rachel on his wedding night. So after seven years of laboring for what he thinks is going to, to get this woman Rachel that he, he, he's in love with, Laban slips Leah into the picture. Now, come on. Are you like me? Like, how does that happen? Like, how do you sleep with the wrong girl? Right? Are you, you with me on that? Do you ever have that question? Okay. Well, there are a few factors that make it at least a little bit plausible. First of all, uh, it says that Laban gathered all the men of his place to make a feast. And the word for feast here is interesting. It's mistak. Which, okay, this word actually has connotations with strong drink. It actually means like a drinking party. So, okay, when I say the word feast in our culture, like, hey, come over, we're going to have a Thanksgiving feast, what you can expect at our house is we usually have prime rib, and some of you have partaken with us, and it's, it, we have a big meal, and we also have some wine there. So the connotation when I say feast is food plus probably some drinks. But what if I say something like kegger? Okay, so the connotation there is drink, with maybe some finger foods, right? Or a tailgate party. I mean, drink with really high salt and fat foods, right? And so that's kind of, this word here implies drink and some food too, all right? So it's a drinking party, and he's with all these men. Now normally, when families would get married, it would be the groom's family would represent, and the bride's family would represent, and they would all mix it up and kind of party together. But Jacob is all by himself, and there's all these foreign men who are all in cahoots with Laban together, and they're, they're drinking together. Now, this reminds me of a story, and I've just got to tell you, it's so out there, it is a true story. Some of you know this person. Uh, so there's a, a friend of mine who's dating a girl from Alabama. And last year, he went to her house for the first time to visit her family. So they're at the house, and he's been there a few hours. And she goes to the bathroom or something. She goes in the back room. And the brothers say, hey, come on outside. I want to show you something. They put a hood over this guy's head, got him into a truck with the cousins they drove him a few miles down the road, pulled the hood off of his head. They go into an old barn, and on a table are like a dozen different kinds of weapons, like guns. And they just let him like soak in the awkwardness of it. And then they laughed, and they all went shooting and stuff. But like, okay, just like a movie, how freaky would that be? To be one person isolated at the expense of all these other people. So there's Jacob with all these men from Laban's side of the group. Uh, you know, normally his dad or his mom would be there. You know, a good Jewish mom is there looking out for him like, Laban, I know you're crooked just like I was. and I'm, Don't mess with my son. But Jacob's there all by himself. And I think he's pretty lit on the time of his, of his wedding here. So uh, he, 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 he's, he's going to bed now. Um, and also, when it was time to consummate the marriage, like... You know, like in our marriages, typically you hang out with the person you're going to get married quite a bit, and you know you're you're smiling for pictures and kissing and and eating together. Well, in these big festivals, it was like kind of you're with the guys and the girls are over here, and they're kind of all getting ready. And then the two sides march the couple up to this tent of consummation. I mean, how awkward is that? So like, then they go in there, and the people actually hang out outside until you're done consummating the marriage, and then they like. You know, they're really married now. And so, you know, they march Jacob into this tent. And you can see the picture. They march Leah into the tent. And these women are veiled. So they go in. He's kind of inebriated. And 
you know, we don't really know how people made love back then. Uh, we do know they had some really weird views on, not weird, but just more conservative views on nudity and clothing. And we even know from like the Victorian age that people would make love with just the necessary pieces of clothing out of the way. Um, there's some very interesting garments if you've looked up Victorian clothing. But anyway, uh, it, but, you know, so we don't know like any of that. But the point is, however it happened... Jacob is super surprised that next day. Um, and what have you done? You know, what have you done to me is his, is his reaction. Um, seven years. Seven years. Deceived him, and then he gets another seven years uh, so he can have both the daughters. Laban is a man who loves himself. The second story of love is Jacob's love for Rachel. You know, thus far in Genesis, Jacob has proved to be kind of a bonehead. But one thing you could say about him is he's a passionate guy. He's got raw emotion. I mean, this is a guy that if, you know, you, you just get the sense. If you, if you ever made him, like, uh, disciplined him into being, you know, I don't know, a, a rock star or, or a disciple of Jesus. or He'd just be awesome at it. Like, he's just got passion for life. He's ambitious, and sometimes that ambition, um, you know, gets the better of him, and he swindles his own family, and he's a deceiver and all that. But the one thing you could say about him is he's passionate about life, and he's in love, head over heels with this Rachel chick, right? So he's impulsive and cunning, and you can't help but swoon a bit when, you know, he says that... Uh, when he says, you know, you worked seven years and it was but a few days to him because he was so in love. Like, you can go ahead and say, aww. I mean, that's, that's a love story. That's a love story. <clears throat> now, typically grooms would pay a bride price when they got married. And the maximum ceiling, at least in Deuteronomy, which comes after this story, is about 50 shekels of silver. And some of the stuff, you know, that we have uh, from other cultures in that area is about 15 to 25 shekels of silver was kind of a decent bride price. Uh, if you look at labor rates and all that stuff, Jacob, serving for seven years, is probably worth more than 50 shekels. So he is just, you know, he's so passionate. I, he's not very wise. Like, he doesn't pray about this at all. He doesn't talk it over with anybody. He's just like, I would work seven years for your younger daughter. Boom! Over 50 shekels. And Laban's like, dang right you will. You're going to work more than that. So, so he, you know, he does this and he fulfills the seven years and it, it feels like days to him. But you know, the one thing about Jacob, and I think something we learn about his love, is that raw passion and even doing things with great conviction, if they're the wrong things, it doesn't mean that you can escape the consequences of those things. And, and Jacob represents a, a kind of a moral reciprocity. See, earlier in his life, uh, when his father's eyes were dimming, when they were blinded by age, he deceived him into getting the blessing of his older brother Esau. He turned the tables on the custom of his day, where the older would get the lion's share of the blessing. He usurped that. He turned it on its head. He says, I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to get mine. Well, here in, Je in Genesis 29, the, in the darkness of evening and strong drink and a veil over his wife, Jacob is deceived by Laban. When he confronts Laban about this treachery, he says, uh, Laban replies, 
it's not the practice in our place to marry the younger before the older. Almost, you know, just a stab at him. The irony is, of course, it's not the way it's done in Jacob's place either. You're always supposed to marry off the older before the younger. And Jacob somehow thinks that he's, the rules don't apply to him. And he's just going to work a little harder and he's going to get the younger before the older. You will reap what you sow. Uh, And that's not just Old Testament stuff. That's Galatians as well. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. There are consequences to our actions. Jacob comes to the well. He doesn't pray. He doesn't seek God's direction for a wife. He acts on his physical animal attraction to Rachel. She's a hottie. She's from the right family. I'm going to marry her. Doesn't know if it's the right woman or not. Jacob is literally a fool for love. And he's shown to be a fool. Romantic, maybe, but at what cost? The third story of love is the story of of Leah. And in some ways, the story of Leah is a story of unlove, of unrequited love. We hear much about her sister Rachel's beauty, Rachel was beautiful in form and overall appearance, but poor Leah. Even her name, Leah, probably means cow in her language. Uh, Rachel's name isn't much better. It means ew, like cute baby lamb ew, not like ew, Rachel. You know, but still, I'd rather be the cuddly lamb than the cow. Um, and then there's this business about her eyes being weak. Probably means dull or ordinary. You know, in the ancient world, people thought that your eyes were windows into the soul. So they thought that, you know, if your eyes were sparkly or, you know, alive, that you were more vital, that you were, uh, you know, a more alive person. And this probably means that Leah's eyes, soft or weak, may have just been seen as less desirable. I can't imagine how difficult this whole scene, this whole experience in her life must have been. You know, it's hard enough to feel unattractive, or unwanted. But have you ever read this episode through Leah's eyes before? Her little sister Rachel is always getting the guy's attention. The stud bachelor Jacob comes in, moving millstones and all that kind of stuff, and he's all infatuated with younger sister Rachel. Then you add that dad uses her as a pawn to get married off to improve his lot. Now you're sleeping with a man Begrudgingly, and when he sees you the morning of your wedding night, goes, Oh my gosh, who are you? I'm just, I, the cow's in my bed. What have you done to me? I mean, a great, great start to a wedding or to a marriage, right? The story naturally breaks, I think, uh, narratively at verse 30. And then 31 and on is the story about Jacob's kids. But I, I wanted to include verses 31 through 35 for a theological reason. And that reason is because I think most of us, at some point, can relate to Leah. She's the classic example of someone trying to win the love of another person. She has to share a husband with her sister. It's no secret that Jacob loves Rachel more than her. How horrible. There's one thing that Rachel can't give Jacob, and that is children. She doesn't have a fertile womb. So she has a child, and she names him Reuben. Then she has Simeon, 
and Levi. She says, now, this time. I mean, can you imagine the desperation in her? Now this time my husband will be attached to me, for I have borne him three sons. Literally, that word attached in Hebrew means, now I will be a partner with my husband. Now I will be included into his family, into his future, into his plans. Now I will be accepted by him, for I have borne him three sons. How desperate and, I think if we look inside, how familiar What lengths have you and I gone to in order to win the love, the acceptance of another person or another group of people? How many times have we pretended to be something we're not? Tried to earn the admiration of another? Leah's love story is a story of searching for love in a broken world where true love is very hard to come by. At least in my experience. Three love stories. In and of themselves, I think pretty darn depressing. Which is why I thank God for the fourth love story. The story of God's love pervading these people's lives and this text. Let's begin with Laban. Laban is a pagan man living in Haran. He's probably a worshiper of the moon god Sin, which was the primary god in that region. His name even means white, which uh, you know was kind of connotes the moon god worship. He's not part of the promise of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and yet we can see God's love and grace in his life. Remember, the promise to Abraham was always to include the other nations. God blessed Abraham in order to be a blessing to the world. And in so doing, the world would come to know God's love for them and come to worship Him. On two separate occasions, the promise-bearing family, Abraham's servant and Jacob himself, make visits to Laban. He had an invitation to partner with Abraham's family and Jacob's family. He had an opportunity to join in the work of God. But he was so spiritually blind and so bent on pleasing himself, on loving himself, on getting his own needs met. He missed it. You know, God will not coerce us. He will bend over backwards. He will die on a cross. He will keep tapping us on the shoulder. He'll put people in our path. But He will not make you or me love Him. And Jesus said in one way or another, if you want to find life, you need to die to your pursuit to build your own life. Laban is a man who loves his own life. He's blind to the things of God, with the things that God are doing. And you know, every one of us have either been a Laban, are starting to recognize Labanish impulses in us, and we all know a Laban in our life. People that, for one reason or another, are stuck in a cycle of selfishness. And we desperately want them to know God and His love, but they seem blind and numb. I want to encourage you guys. Pray for the Labans in your life. You know, some of the Labans in your life are your enemies. People that you're angry at. People that are mad at you. You know what Jesus says to do with enemies, right? Love them. And one of the ways we can do that is to, Lord, 
would you reveal yourself, reveal your love, break in where my words, where my actions, where my presence can't break in. God made the Labans in our life. He loves the Labans in our life. And Jesus died to rescue them. Okay? Next we see God's love present in Jacob's life. You know, we might look at Jacob and getting deceived by Laban and almost, you know, if it wasn't a real story, almost laugh at it and say, you know, Jacob, you got what you deserved, right? I mean, he kind of did. The guy was a deceiver. He gets deceived. He got the girl, but at what cost? He served for nearly 14 years, or, or no, he served for 14 years, and now he has not only two wives, but sisters. Okay, I watch how my two, kid, my two girls like fight over my attention. Could you guys, could you marry, imagine being married to two sisters? <laughs> the Bible even later on says like you shouldn't marry two sisters. And later on, even further, it says you, know, you should have one wife. But uh, l- let's stick there with the one wife thing. That would be a good starter. But I mean, can imagine, so imagine this Jacob. He's been deceived. He was just going to marry Rachel. But now he's got two sisters. They can't stand each other. They're jealous of each other. They've also got their own maids. All these mouths to feed. All this tension in his house. Yeah, this isn't a happy marriage. So he gets the girl, but he's also in a world of hurt if you were to keep reading chapter 30 and 31. But through all of this, God is on the move and his love prevails. First, notice that God, through all of Jacob's screw-ups, is still faithful to his promise. Jacob is going to leave Haran with what? Sons and daughters. His family is growing. That's, that's a problem. He's going to leave Haran wealthy, and he's going to go back and buy some land in the promised land. All of the promises of God to him are still coming true. And this is most important. Through all of this, God does not spare Jacob the pain of his consequences. I don't know what version of Christianity you have heard. But sometimes I bump into people that when bad things happen, I don't get it. Why is this happening to me? Like, God does not spare us pain just because we follow Him. But He uses it to shape us. Listen, better than just helping Jacob to get out of his consequences and just giving him, ah, oh, it's fine, you just screwed over your family. Ah, oh, it's okay. He uses the, the consequences of Jacob's actions to shape his character, to humble him, to make him into a man who can lead a people. Can you imagine Jacob the way he was leading a nation? No, but in a few chapters, you're going to see a different Jacob who emerges as a humble leader, who comes to his brother not with, not running away, comes to his brother not with war, but on his knees. God, through pain, turns Jacob into a good shepherd. He redeems Jacob's mistakes and consequences and turns them into something beautiful. I want to read this quote to you from the Common Prayer book. It's a quote by Ronald uh, Rollheiser from his writing, Forgotten Among the Lilies. And this is what he says. If the Catholicism that I was raised in had a fault, and it did, it was precisely that it did not allow for mistakes. 
It demanded that you get it right the first time. There was supposed to be no need for a second chance. If you made a mistake, you lived with it, like the rich young man, and you were doomed to be sad, at least for the rest of your life. A serious mistake was a permanent stigma, stigmatization, a mark that you wore like Cain. I've seen that mark on all kinds of people. Divorcees, ex-priests, ex-religious, people who have had children outside of marriage, parents who have made serious mistakes with their children, parents who have um, abused their children, countless, countless others who have made serious mistakes. There is too little around to help them, he writes. We need a theology of brokenness. We need a theology that teaches us that even though we cannot unscramble the egg, God's grace lets us live happily with a renewed innocence far beyond any egg we may have scrambled. We need a theology that teaches us that God does not just give us one chance, but that every time we close a door, He opens another door. The things God does for love. He wants to redeem you and me, even using our worst mistakes. He is ever trying to make us into His image. We can resist, but when we embrace the reality that troubles in our lives can bear fruit of maturity and bear fruit of health, then we'll stop striving against God. We'll stop asking the question, why me? And start asking, God, what are you doing in me? God is not interested so much in our comfort as He is forming our character. Finally, we see God's love, His action in the story of Leah. There she is trying to win the love of Jacob by having his children and three sons still doesn't do the trick. The narrator tells us that God saw Leah and that she was unloved and he opened her womb and he did this out of mercy and love. See, by her fourth child, her eyes seem to be spiritually open. She comes to grips with the fact that, you know, I'm never going to please this guy. Have you ever come to grips with that before? That person, that group? That is one of the most freeing things you can do. We can never fully please one another. She comes to grips with this. That three kids, I'm still not pleasing this guy. I still don't feel like I'm a varsity player. Like he's got varsity Rachel and I'm way down on the JV list. So she says, you know what? I'm going to try and please God. And it's like she realized all of a sudden, God is the one who is giving me these sons. God is good to me. And so she names that fourth son Judah. This time, I will praise the Lord. And of course, we know so much more than Leah could ever know. We know that that child Judah, the son of the unloved wife, the one named Cow with the weak eyes, we know that that son would produce offspring from which we get King David. 
from which we get Jesus, the incarnate God, the rescuer of the world, came through the unloved wife. And that tells me at least two things. God does not despise the weak, and neither should we. We should not despise the outsider, the unloved, or the unlovable. Think about that, because it's real nice to say, oh, we should love everyone and those people on the margins. But there's people in our lives who aren't just poor or anything like that. They're people that you just can't stand. They're the unlovable. They're the hard to love. Those are also the Leahs in the world. A case could even be made, scripturally, I think, that God prefers these types of people. How will we treat God's beloved? The second thing that this teaches me is don't despair. If you are the one who feels unloved, misunderstood, outside, undesirable, and don't think the person sitting next to you can't be that person. Oh, she's so pretty. She would never feel like Leah. Or he's so successful. Oh, he can never experience my problems. That's, that's not true. I think every one of us has areas in our life where we feel like the Leah. Second best, third best, maybe hundredth best. God loves you. He sees you. He knows you. He's pursuing you. The things we do for love really pale in comparison to what God does for love. This is the God who has loved us enough to put on flesh to dwell among us, to die the death that we deserve, that we might have his life. This is the God who is alive and well and loves you and I more than we can imagine. So I ask you, I ask you, will you surrender to him and his love? Would you pray with me? Lord, it seems like a lot of good words. I convinced myself just now preaching them. But Lord, somehow there's resistance. Sometimes in our minds, sometimes in our hearts, sometimes in a place we don't have an anatomy for. Maybe a soul. Maybe, like the ancients called it, deep in our belly, in our bones. I pray, Lord, that you would break through the resistance to us trusting that you actually cherish us, each one. That you think we're great. That you think, yeah, we are broken. But you died to redeem us because we're broken. Lord, I pray that you would encourage those who are going through hard times. Lord, that we would remember how you shape our character that you make us more like yourself through adversity, and as sick as it might even sound out of the book of James, help us to even have that perspective of counting it all joy when our faith is tested. Thank you, Lord, for including us in your love story. And Lord, help us to move past all the ooey-gooey romantic side of that 
and to see your steadfast love, your unfailing love, your love that transcends our understanding, your love that, that boxes in the face of rebellion. God, help us to embrace you in your love. Amen.